Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hi everyone, my name is Dr Fiona Calvert and I'm a Science Communications Officer for Alzheimer's Research UK. I'm really excited to have been invited to host this special podcast for the Dementia Researcher website. As well as lighter and longer days, the arrival of spring also means that it's time for the Alzheimer's Research UK conference. Um, This is the UK's largest dementia research conference, and we're returning in 2021 as a fully virtual conference with more attendees than ever before. 20 years ago, the Alzheimer's Research UK conference started as a network meeting with around 20 attendees. And this year, we have over 500 registered participants. Alzheimer's Research UK has always recognized the importance and contribution of early career researchers within dementia research. And yesterday, we held our dedicated conference early career researcher day. And in today's show, we're going to be recapping and reflecting on that day. And what better way to discuss important early career researcher topics than with early career researchers themselves. So I'm delighted to be joined by three highly successful early career researchers who are gonna share what they've seen and heard so far and just chat a little bit with me about the conference. So hello and welcome to Misha Clark, a PhD student from University College London, Katie Hall, a PhD student from the University of Bath, and Dr. Yvonne Couch, Alzheimer's Research UK Fellow from the University of Oxford. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Hi. 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 So before we talk about the day and get into the specifics, I sort of wanted to give you all a chance to introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of an insight into your research area. So I'll start with uh, Misha. Hi, yeah, my name's Misha. I am just finishing up my PhD at the moment and going into a postdoc working in brain imaging, specifically PET imaging in frontotemporal dementia research. Very cool. And then Katie, how about you? Yeah, I'm Katie. Um, I'm a third year PhD student and I'm looking at a flavonoid called epicatechin, which is found in cocoa beans, um, and seeing if that can target tau pathology in neuronal models. Very cool. And we'll finish up with Yvonne. Yep. Hi, I'm Yvonne. I'm a research fellow at Oxford and I started my Alzheimer's Research UK fellowship at the end of last year. And I'm interested in the role of extracellular vesicles and post-stroke vascular dysfunction. Very cool. Lots of varied research topics. That's what we like to hear. Um, So we had our early career researcher day yesterday at the conference, and it was a mixture of talks, workshops and panels. So I guess I kind of wanted to start by just asking you all what your favorite moment of the day was. And Katie, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think it was all really good. I think my highlight was probably right at the beginning, the talk by Oz Ismail gave a really good talk about how um, being a good researcher isn't all just about the research, it's also about going outside the bounds and doing outreach, making sure there's equity in the lab, getting good mentors, um, and kind of just having an all-round holistic approach to science instead of just focusing on the research and the idea that it's a happy lab as a happy and productive researcher, I thought was really important for everyone to focus on, even from PIs to researchers themselves. 
can I jump in and ask a question of the two PhD students here? Do you think, so based on that comment, do you think it's difficult to find a, a good mentor? Do you pick a mentor for your PhD based on what the rest of the lab says, or do you pick it based on what research you're interested in and, and how important do you think those two things are? I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that varies quite a lot between PhD students and how they find themselves beginning a PhD. Uh, for me, I was very lucky to have a rotation year before my PhD began, and that gave me an opportunity to, to kind of combine both of those things, to think about the project itself and my experience over three months working with the supervisors. Um, and my advice going forward to future PhD students would be to try and take both into account and maybe more emphasis on the team you're working with than the specific project itself. Um, you can modify your project as it goes over the years of your PhD, but you can't necessarily change the dynamic of a lab and of your supervisor or mentor. So yeah, I think that's got a really important part to play in having a good PhD experience. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I think it's obviously important to enjoy what you're doing and make sure that you're in the right lab for that. I think having a supervisor who you can fully um, feels fully supports you, I think is also really important and having mentors that can kind of help you flourish in research, whether that's in your lab or outside. Yeah, I think they're all really great points and I, I completely agree. I thought that was Dr. Oz's talk was the perfect way to start off that conference. It was a brilliant reminder to early career researchers. You know, we get so wrapped up in, in our science and finishing our PhDs and our fellowships and publishing papers. And actually it's sometimes nice to have that reset of, okay, what makes me a well-rounded scientist? So I completely agree. I thought that was just a fantastic way to start, start the conference off. Uh, Misha, how about you? What was your favorite part of the day? Um, so again, I thoroughly enjoyed all of it, actually, um, and I really enjoyed the workshops. However, I think my favourite part was the last session of the day, the careers session. Um, and I think just because of the variety of talks we received and something as an early career researcher that you don't necessarily get is an insight into careers outside of academia while you're still inside academia. And even if you have no interest in leaving academia and you want to stay in that industry, uh, not an industry, um, for a while, it's really helpful to have the insights of how different careers do work and how journal editing works versus how you can get involved with exhibitions at museums. And yeah, the talks were really nice to get those kind of insights that you don't get otherwise. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciated in that panel as someone who was in research and has, and has left, um, to do something different. I really appreciated that none of the careers were described as alternative careers, which I think is like a pet peeve of mine. Um, it's, you know, all careers in science are valuable and contribute to the scientific process, no matter kind of what stage you're working at. And Yvonne, how about you? What was your, your highlight of the day? So mine was similar to Misha's. I loved the careers bit. And, and for exactly the reason that you said, Fiona, which is that it, it's not sort of shaming people who might be interested in leaving academia. So I love that bit. For, but for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the old person in the room and say that I loved some of the first talks and the caliber of the PhD students that were presenting was just amazing. So to present clearly and succinctly in a short period of time and to get your message across is a real skill. And a lot of 
mature professors don't have that and they will waffle over time and their message will be unclear and the presentation will be awful. So, you know, in a sort of as non-patronizing a way as possible, I think that, that those guys did an awesome job yesterday and there was some really cool research there. Oh, 100%. I'm always so blown away by the level of these PhD presentations and it makes us so excited about the future of dementia research. And I think, like you said, it's they were just so kind of polished and they knew their stuff and it's so impressive. Uh, and I also loved that there was so much variation in those topics. You know, we had uh, people talking about inflammation or infections and their kind of like how they impact cognitive decline. And I think it's always just such a broad spectrum and it's just really exciting to see. So, yeah, I think I think we covered pretty much all of the highlights of the day there. Uh, I know that Misha, you mentioned uh, the workshops, and I think that that's something with a virtual conference that can be quite difficult, but something that we worked really hard to try and create these kind of engaging workshops with breakout sessions. And I know you all attended different sessions throughout the day. So it'd be great to chat a little bit about what those workshops were about. So I think Yvonne, you attended the open science session, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah that's right. If you could give us some flavor about, you know, for anyone that maybe doesn't know, what kind of is open science and what did you learn from that session? Sure. So the I suppose the official definition of open science is to make the primary outputs of publicly funded research. So the publications and the research data publicly accessible in a format that has no or minimal restrictions. So research shouldn't be hidden behind a paywall that you can only access from certain institutions. And for me and for a lot of us, I suspect that's really important. So here, a lot of our research is uh, funded by Alzheimer's Research UK. Uh, it's a charity, people do fun runs, they knit things, they bake things so that we can do our research and we can generate data and that data should be publicly available. So uh, the session today was run by George Bowsden. Um, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and he works at PLOS as an editor. Um, the idea of the PLOS journals is that um, they consider manuscripts based on scientific rigor rather than uh, novelty. So they don't necessarily need your work to be shiny. They need it to be done well, which I think is a great idea. And George had a bunch of ideas about shaking up the publishing industry and shaking up the scientific sort of um, workplace in order to make science more open so that we can you know, build on each other's research. And his sort of three main ideas were uh, developing new ways of publishing, uh, developing different ways of sharing. And uh, he talked a little bit about some of the problems with impact. So, for new ways of publishing, and I'd be keen to get everybody's thoughts on this because I, I had a very quiet discussion group. So anyone, <laughs> has, I've, I've got many opinions on this front. So for new ways of publishing, what he was suggesting was a shift towards registered and pre-registered reports. So the idea of this is to, gener uh, to encourage hypothesis-driven research. So you register your idea and how you plan to test it. And the idea is that once that's accepted, then you have pretty much a guaranteed publication at the end of it. And for me, there are a whole bunch of issues with that, which we can argue about as if you want to. Um, he also encouraged the idea of different ways of data sharing. So he mentioned a platform called protocols.io, which is a protocol sharing site. 
And lots of early career researchers use things like that, but also things like ResearchGate um, to go on and look for sort of nuances in methods that might not necessarily be available in the papers. And finally, he talked about the problems with quantifying impact, saying that it's really hard to quantify impact with, of individual papers compared to the impact of the whole, the journal as a whole. Um, and that moving forward, things like the article level metric. So if you ever go and look at a plus one paper or a plus biology paper, they've got this funky little circle thing in the top corner that's got all sorts of different colors on. And that's an article level metrics number. And it's sort of squashes together how many times the paper's been cited, whether it's been tweeted about, whether news outlets have taken it up. But the trouble with that is that they are not really clear how it's calculated. And that can be affected by all sorts of other things, like, you know, whether you have a good media center at your university. So, so whilst impact factors don't really work, article level metrics have their own issues that we sort of have to fix. So overall, to get good open science, uh, I think the the whole you know the whole scientific community needs to get on board and, and change. But I'm happy yeah. to hear your ideas if you have them. I think that's super fascinating, and I think that uh, it's something that that we talk about a lot as kind of communication officers, you know. And at Alzheimer's Research UK, we're committed to open science, but I think it's that that thing of fixing or changing a system that's been around for a really long time in the publishing system. And it's making those like small incremental changes um, and how we can go about doing that to, to have the most effect. Um, and, you know, I know in, in some fields, there's lots of talk about kind of uh, publishing preprints. So in uh, things like bioarchive um, and kind of places like that, where it's before your paper's been accepted, I guess, so Katie and Nisha, uh, as early career researchers right at the start of your career in science is open science something that you talk about within your research groups and how to make sure that the results that you generate are out there and available yeah so I think um it's something we rely on in some of our research so cohort sharing and um being able to access data that from big studies like ADNI a big imaging study that has a whole host of data on different individuals from around the world. So that's one thing about sharing the, the raw data, if you like, or the summary data, but the papers itself, I think is really important. I mean, as a PhD student writing lit reviews and going through papers, when you do greet a paywall, you're hopeful that your university has got access to those papers and that you can read them. Um, but it, I think, you know, you get past the login and you get into the paper itself, but you kind of have to think for people that don't have this, but do have a desire to read that science, it's a shame that there is a block to people doing so. Um, and whether that's because you left science but maintain an interest or because like Yvonne says, you know, you've got a vested interest in dementia research and you're fundraising for it and you want to be able to see the outcomes that come from the money that you've raised. So I think it is a really important uh, problem in science. Um, and it's something I personally don't know enough about, I think. I think I'd benefit from perhaps ARUK 2022 IPIC Open Science Workshop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Katie, how about you? Is that something you talk about in your lab, about sharing your data widely? Yeah, I think it's something we're definitely starting to talk about. I think it's obviously quite new and a lot of it's put on the researchers to figure it out themselves, which is why these talks were you get someone to come in and talk about it, it's really useful. We've had a couple of, my funding body, the GW4 Biomed DTP, 
Um, which is MRC funded. We've had a couple of open science kind of research days and that's really helpful, but it does seem quite difficult. And um, I agree with Misha about when you hit paywalls, it's just so hard and like thinking that all these people who support ARUK and other charities, they put this funding in to get the research out there and then they're not able to look at the research themselves. And I think it'd be really great if one day just everyone could see it. Yeah, I definitely you, agree. You've also got to think about the waste of resources. So you're thinking about people hitting paywalls if they're interested in the work, but you would think of people in lower middle income countries who are sort of trying to, you know, maybe it's a very young university and they're just setting up and they don't have the funds to sort of, you know, subscribe to all these journals. And so they're trying to set up a research program, but they don't have access to all this stuff that's been done before. So they might end up wasting money and time repeating experiments that they don't know have already been done because, because they can't access them. And it's such, it's such a shame. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think from what it seems like is we could have a whole podcast on open science. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one for the future, I think. Um, so yeah, we had a whole host of different workshops. So open science was one of them. I think, uh, Katie, you also attended one all about paper writing, which is like a really important skill for researchers and definitely uh, something to like refine as you move through the different stages of your career. You get used to different parts of that paper writing process. So what was your highlight from that session? Yeah, it's obviously really good to learn more about paper writing. I'm currently just writing my first research paper now, so it's great timing. Um, yeah, it was a really good talk by, I think it was Elliot Nickdale. And he was kind of talking about how writing a paper should be like writing a story and you should really play into the human nature that's really interested in problem solving. So at each stage you should present the problem and then the reader will want to learn more about how you've kind of combated that problem and just keep going back to that. Um, so they kind of had three points. The first was linearity, which is that sentence A should flow into sentence B. And if you finish a paragraph, you should finish it on a problem so that people are like, I want to find out more. Let's go to the next paragraph. Keep you reading because everyone knows that no matter how far you get, reading papers can get quite monotonous and they're not always that exciting to read. Um, and then the second one was mirroring, which is this idea that should be cyclical. So if you bring up a problem at the beginning, so dementia research has no cure, or not dementia research has no cure, dementia has no cure. And then at the end, you should be, why is your work kind of contributed to this field and how is that gonna help? And that kind of brings it all together. And the final one is this idea of all stories need to have a profound change and that you should really emphasize your problem and give the good background to kind of make the reader understand why this problem is such a big issue and kind of using those tips, how that might make a writing a paper but easier and make it easier for people to read it and more enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think the concept of, you know, storytelling with our science is a, a really interesting one. And I think one that maybe makes researchers feel a bit nervous when they first hear it, right? Because you feel like, oh, I don't want to tell a story. I want the data to speak for itself. But I think that concept of you can weave your data into a really kind of compelling narrative through a paper is really important for getting people like you said actually wanting to read your stuff not just skimming the abstract and then the you know the different kind of results figures I think that's a really interesting concept I don't know if either Misha or Yvonne you have any thoughts on that storytelling in your science yeah definitely I think um 
particularly as I'm in the writing up stage of my thesis, that's become particularly important because you end up with lots of different chapters that may or may not be connected to one another that you need to somehow make a story out of. And there, and there is a story behind it. And I think as a scientist, sometimes it just takes a bit of stepping back to look at how your data comes together, why it comes together and, and linking back to, like Katie said, the problem, the, why you are doing the research in the first place. Um, and something I find helpful for doing that is talking with people that are less directly involved in the research I do and trying to explain at different levels, at a lay person level, but also others in my group who aren't interested in exactly my research question, just to help me get perspective on, on what that story really is. So useful. And Yvonne, I get you're kind of a bit further on. You've probably had a bit more experience writing some papers as part of your career. Do you find it really helpful to go back and, and reset the way that you think about writing papers every so often? I do. And I also like to sort of take a little bit of inspiration from the way that other people write papers. So this is going to sound really geeky and tragic. Um, there was a really awesome series of papers by a chap called Chris Dobson, who's sadly no longer with us. He was at Cambridge and he wrote a series of papers on protein misfolding. And I actually sent him an email because I enjoyed one of his papers so much. It was just so easy to read because of exactly the things that Casey said. He he told a story and he he had such great flow between all the sections and you really got to the end and you went, I want to work on protein misfolding. It's so interesting. And, you know, I don't, but it was the way he wrote it. I just, I found it so inspiring. And so having that kind of perspective and, and thinking about how you write and, you know, in the context of how other people write is, is as you go forward, it's really important. I think I find it really fascinating, that concept of bringing some of those ideas, those more creative ideas into our scientific writing, because I also think that we often forget that, you know, the scientists that are reading our papers, not, not even talking about kind of non-scientists, but scientists all come from different backgrounds. So they maybe don't have the, the background knowledge that I have, that I'm writing it. And having that story helps bring them along as well into that paper, um, which I think. And often I would say that, that writing well is almost described as a I, they want to call it sort of soft skills and because uh, a lot of scientists are so sort of data driven they're so you know this is how my experiment's going to be this is what I want to do and then at the end they realize they have to write it up and it ends up coming out so dry and so difficult to read that it's I think the people with those sort of skills to make it easy to read and to make it flow um, I think it's it's definitely a skill that the early career researchers need to sort of think about and, and try to work on and find people who can sort of help them develop those skills. Yeah definitely and I think that's where these workshops are really important because you know like you said there's that typical thing of calling them soft skills but actually these are really important skills for not just a career in academia but if if you ever want to do something different those are those transferable skills that become really useful and I think storytelling kind of leads us really nicely into the other workshop which I think Nisha you attended which was all about public engagement and was a really unique way of engaging the public with your research do you want to tell us a little bit about the session? Yeah so it was definitely all about getting creative um, so the session on public engagement was quite interactive. It was really enjoyable, actually. It was led by Hannah, um, who I believe is a freelance um, kind of public engagement in science specialist. 
and yeah uh, she's one of our inspire fund holders at alzheimer's research uk that's well. it um so it was really nice to hear of a different way of getting science communication out there so we focused on a concept or a thing called a zine that's z-i-n-e um and they are essentially miniature kind of leaflets in the style of a kind of accessible magazine that allows you to to demonstrate a scientific concept in a kind of approachable way so they can be used in lots of different settings um, and our task in the workshop was to create one a very rough draft of a zine so we got out our pen and paper we did a little bit of amateur origami to put a zine together and then we um, decided a topic that would fit with our research. So for example, my zine was titled, What is a PET Scan? And I decided to, in a very basic illustration, very basic illustration, communicate what a PET scan is and how it works. Um, and you could pick a different audience to talk to. It could be members of the public. It could be patients who are involved in research. It could be um, school students, You know, any audience you want to communicate to. And it was a really nice way that I've never experienced before of putting together a concept that you could yeah, share with lots of different audiences. Um, we had breakout sessions. So I went into a group of six people and everyone was working on completely different things. Everyone was probably equally as amateur as each other at trying to put these scenes together. Um, but it was really good fun. And actually the virtual setting, I think, worked really well for it um, because you could, you know, get out a couple of materials and colored pens and have a bit of fun at your desk. Yeah, I think that's a really unique concept, you know, and I, I really enjoy, or at least I did as a researcher, and I still do now, it's like stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit to think about how I talk about my science. I think often when we talk about public engagement, people imagine, you know, giving a talk or going to a school and demonstrating. Actually, there are all these really unique ways. And I think some of the things that Hannah does, I know, are really interesting to bring people in and like you said nothing wrong with getting some coloring pens out every now and then <laughs> exactly and actually I think you know already in our group a few people from my team decided to go to the public engagement uh, workshop because we're very keen to get involved with that and we um, form part of a team called FDD talk and we have an, a website that's kind of targeting public engagement and we were already thinking, you know, how can we use these zines? Can we produce different ones for patient support groups or for kind of science events at different points in the year and things like that? So, yeah, lots of useful tips taken away from that session. That's great. That's what we love to hear, that they're not only are they useful within the conference, but you can actually kind of implement them into your wider work as researchers. So that's great. I think the final workshop was all about fellowship applications um, and Yvonne, you are one of our Alzheimer's Research UK fellows yourself. Um, so you've sort of been through that process. So I guess kind of just really briefly, what's your biggest tip for fellowship applications, either from what you heard in the session or from your own experience applying? So it'd be really hard to pin it down. And actually, Francis and Daniel did a great job of covering some of the basics. So if, if you want to go and watch them, try and go and watch them again, because they were awesome. But I think I'd just say start by thinking about your proposal and make your proposal really obvious. That sounds dumb, but I know you know why your research is important, but I don't know, and neither do the panel, neither do the reviewers. So make it really obvious and handhold them through it. 
And then my second one would be just don't apply for a fellowship because your supervisor told you to do it. Apply for one because it's what you want, because it's the right time and the right place and the right you know, environment for you to establish your independence. Because taking those two approaches will mean that you'll be able to get your passion and your love of research across. If you're doing it because somebody else says you should, then then you're not gonna you're not gonna have that love for what you do. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think it's something again that kind of leads into that discussion we were having earlier about different career paths, you know sometimes we follow these career paths as researchers because that's sort of what's done oh you finished your undergrad you've done a master's now it's time to do a PhD oh you're going to do a postdoc and then it's a fellowship but it is it's about finding that thing that you love and you're passionate about and yeah very very much so very much so yeah and do you think is there anything that you wish you'd have known when you went through that process of fellowship applications that that you didn't Probably not that they didn't cover. I would say that it, when you get rejections, they are more crushing than you you are prepared for. So Daniel Daniel did say in his uh, fellowship presentation that he went off and cried, and I have spent many many hours in offices crying, thinking, and it feels so childish to do it because it's like oh nobody likes me, nobody likes what I do. But it's it's not that it's it's a, an opportunity. In retrospect, it's an opportunity for you to learn and for you to think about how you've presented your research and how you could present it better or how you could bring different ideas in. But at the time, it is it is very crushing. And I think if you are an early career researcher, you should just be a bit mentally prepared for that. Yeah, I also think it makes a huge difference to hear people you know, at later stages of their career, talk about those rejections to normalize it as part of this process. Like, unfortunately, as much as we wish it wasn't, rejection is a big part of academic life and, you know, normalizing and normalizing feeling bad about it as well. Yeah, very much. And that, that was why I was so pleased that Daniel said that he was really upset when he got rejected because it is, it is crushing because you've put, you, you tend to have put your sort of heart and soul into these applications. And like you say, that's why it was kind of nice in the careers talks for people to say, actually, you don't have to do this. This is not the path that you have to take if you don't want to do it and if you don't love it. Because I think if you if you don't love it, it's it's not a it's not a cheerful way to go. But if you do love it, it's great. Yeah, definitely. And I guess to kind of Katie and Misha, as you know, PhD students uh, at that first kind of rung on the ladder of, of academic careers, um, how was it and why do you think it's so important to have and hear from a variety of different careers in science, um, like the one that we had on Early Career Researcher Day? Yeah, I thought it was really good. And I think it's really nice as well, because a lot of these kind of alternative careers sessions are his industry. You're not going into academia, so you're going into industry, obviously, that's the choice. So it's really nice to see such a varied collection and see that you really can do pretty much anything if you want, want to do it. And kind of seeing that you can do be a museum curator, I just that's not even something I would have ever considered would be a thing. And like into policy and a startup, which kind of seems mad. I think it's just really interesting to see all the things that you can do. And it's not just academia or industry. I think it's really good to see. Totally agree. I think I also found um, from both the fellowship fellowships 
workshop which I attended within that and within the careers panel it was just so helpful as an early career researcher so from the fellowships workshop learning that you know it's not one straight trajectory and uh, Prof Katie Lunnan for example was talking on the panel and she said you know she's she's actually never received a fellowship and for her there are other ways to become a PI and eventually a prof by you know pilot schemes and other grants that you can apply for that aren't necessarily your own autonomous fellowship um, and that's reassuring because there's a lots of lots of postdocs in academia and not everybody's going to follow the same path to get to the top um, and then also yeah the careers work uh, careers session at the end was just brilliant um, I think I agree with Yvonne Katie that it's not it wasn't presented as alternative careers that you know these are your other resort if you don't make it it's not that at all it was from people that had actively chosen to leave academia because of their interests and I think it's not there isn't only one step after a PhD of going into a postdoc there are plenty of steps you can take and jobs I didn't know existed so that was yeah really really exciting to hear about. Yeah, I think that jobs I didn't know existed definitely resonates with me. When I was coming towards the end of my PhD, I, I knew that I didn't want to stay kind of working in a lab, um, but I sort of just had no idea what else was out there. And I remember going to my career service and being like, I want a different job, but I don't even know what jobs there are. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And like that conversation was just like mind, but there's so much out there. And I know that I think uh, the Dementia Researcher podcast they did a careers week and and they have lots of different podcasts uh, on the site about you know different careers and people that have kind of worked in different areas of science so I think I agree with you all it's just so important to remind people that like you said not all paths are linear and all you know everyone's path is individual and you don't need to compare yourself to someone else you just gotta do your own thing <laughs> So I guess kind of wrapping up towards the end, the main conference has started today. It's Tuesday. Um, what are you most looking forward to? And are you presenting? Feel free to like plug your talk, your posters. Uh, Katie, we'll start with you. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm actually, I missed this morning. So I'm really looking forward to going back on and seeing that about drug discovery. And I'm not sure if that initial talk will be up on demand, but I've seen lots of stuff on Twitter about how there's a really good um, talk with someone who'd experienced um, dementia in the family and that. So I'd really like to see that if that's possible. Um, I do have a poster. It's 7.6 and it's on treating the mouse model of telepathy with our epicatechin, our dietary flavonoid and the changes we saw in tau pathology and that and kind of trying to understand the mechanisms of it. So to go check it out. <laughs> Good plugging there. Yeah, so uh, we're trying to make all of those talks available on demand. So you should be able to watch them back, anyone that's registered. Uh, the perk of being virtual is you don't all have to be sat in the in the conference hall at the same time. So uh, yeah, those all should be on demand. And yeah, definitely check out the posters. I think the, the good thing is we have a nice interactive platform for those. Um, so Yvonne, how about you? What are you most looking forward to and what are you plugging for, for the rest of the conference? So I only started my fellowship at the end of last year and because of COVID, I've only got 50% of the lab time at the moment. So I really have no data, but I would like to do a shout out to anyone interested in stroke or extracellular vesicles or vascular dementia because 
I'm a solo researcher, so I'm always looking out for new collaborators. Um, and because I'm new to sort of the vascular dementia field, I'm really just looking forward to seeing what's out there and um, who's doing what. Yeah, I think that's the nice thing about these conferences is they're so varied and we have such a kind of wide variety of topics is you can kind of dip into those fields that are new to you. Um, we also on the platform have a kind of matching system so you can put in topics that you're interested in and get matched with people sort of like uh, speed dating, but for, for researchers and their, <laughs> their interested topics. Uh, Misha, how about you? Yeah, I think one thing I really like about AR UK is having this balance between the ECR day, early career researcher day, and then the main conference itself. Um, there's such a range of topics covered and they're nicely grouped into different sessions. So you can be quite focused on the talks that are most relevant for you. Um, I do have a poster, which is poster 4.5. I am talking while well, presenting work on inflammatory PET imaging in genetic frontotemporal dementia. Um, and what I really like about this virtual platform is it seems very interactive. Um, of course, I think we all miss the networking aspect of conferences and the benefits you get from talking to people. But as far as I can tell, it's a pretty good system for kind of posting questions on people's posters and getting involved in some discussion anyway. So I'm looking forward to a bit of that this week. Yeah, definitely. I think We've got so many exciting sessions coming up. Um, I, I'm really interested to uh, listen into the one all about uh, kind of viruses and how viral infections relate to dementia. I think something that's all been on our mind a lot more this year. Um, and I just think is a really kind of fascinating area of research that maybe we don't kind of dip into enough. So I'm really intrigued to listen into that. And we have a whole host of other early career researchers presenting throughout the conference. And like you said, just the posters. I'm always amazed by posters and how uh, visually exciting people make their posters look. Um, so I love being able to go and see those. So it's time to uh, end today's podcast recording. And I just want to thank our panelists, uh, Misha, Katie and Yvonne. You've been fantastic. I've enjoyed chatting to you a little bit more. I wish we could have spent three hours on this podcast talking about all these things. Um, if you would like to see kind of more about the conference and you're on Twitter, you can check out the hashtag, hashtag AIUKConf21. Um, and if you registered then uh, to the conference, but there were sessions you can't attend, then we do have an on-demand function. So you'll be able to watch back to different sessions. And I know some of the videos at the start of the conference um, like those people who had family connections to dementia um, and we had a summary of our 2020 year at Alzheimer's Research UK. We'll be looking to put those on the website so that they can be shared more widely. The team are going to be writing up blogs for our supporters and followers that you can find uh, on our website. We have profiles of all the panelists today on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts so you can follow along and find out a bit more about their research. If any of our listeners have any questions, either about what we've chatted about today or more kind of wider questions about dementia research, the dementia researcher has a really busy and active WhatsApp community group. There's fortnightly themed discussions to talk about topics from the podcast. Um, and you can find details on how to join that on the website. So I think there's going to be one of them in a week's time, all about the AIUK Alzheimer's Research UK conference. So hopefully some people can join us there. And finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, 
iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud, all the other places you can find podcasts. I know everyone gets them from lots of different places. And thank you again, Katie, Misha and Yvonne. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.